Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. John chapter 11, verse 21 and 32. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless my words to be true and useful to building up your beloved people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The raising of Lazarus from the dead is the last public miracle that Jesus does before his crucifixion and resurrection, and hence why it's placed here in the liturgical calendar, so we connect those facts. And it is, in fact, the miracle that precipitates the Jewish authorities um, seeking to catch and kill Jesus in earnest. And we see this recorded just a few verses on from the gospel reading we just heard in John chapter 12, verse 10. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That this is, um, to use a slightly, I can't think of a better word right now, but almost the most flagrant miracle that Jesus does. Because he's raised people from the dead before. He raised the the young girl, but it was the only witnesses were the three apostles and the family. It was in the inside room. Uh, He's raised the widow's son before, but it was only just the mourners there. and It was kind of on route, and it was still... Um, not quite as on display. Um, and also, um, those had been only just dead. I can't help but think of that scene in um, Princess Bride of, you know, there's dead and there's dead dead. Um, <laughs> Lazarus is dead dead, right? Like, they're worried about the stink of his decaying flesh. So as, as a reason not to remove the stones, he's dead dead. And this miracle is out in the open for all to see. There's mourners, there's the crowd, there's people gathering for Passover because you'd come in a few weeks in advance and it's just outside Jerusalem. So with everybody watching, Jesus does this miracle and he raises the dead to life for all to see. And it's so convincing that lots and lots of people are becoming Christians in the, at the 11th hour of Jesus' mortal ministry. Uh, and it's so convincing that that's what makes the Jewish authorities recognize those who had hardened their hearts against Jesus' true claim to be Messiah, that they had to put his ministry to an end, hence why they thought he was, they were killing him, which of course was actually the Lord's plan to lay down his life, but why they were putting him to death. So as well as um, testifying, and something that just keeps dawning on me year after year is how many things Jesus does two or three times, according to the principle of let any truth be established by two or three witnesses, Um, He's showing us, let there be no mistake, he has power over death. And not just with his own life, because if only Jesus had been raised, and this is kind of a weird hypothetical, but we might be inclined to think, well, it's because he's God and man, right? Of course, Jesus could be raised. But no, he raises regular human beings from the grave. And as well as um, communicating his power over death for us, on the eve before he demonstrates his power over death in his own embodied life. This event, this moment in Jesus' ministry is, is full of signification for us. It's why it's such a long gospel reading with this setup and reflection and all these exchanges and the parallels to Jesus' own resurrection. Did you catch those? There's women at the tomb. There's cloths and there's similarities but differences. That's a very meaningful story. And so I want to um, draw out actually 
one facet of the meaning, although several could be drawn. Um, and what I wish to highlight is God's interaction with our pain. It's really kind of through line through this musical story, his interaction with our pain. Pain from living in a world that is corrupted by death and loss. So the first part is that Jesus permits the pain. We see that. I asked Deacon, there's an optional reading. You could read that really long gospel or kind of just the second half. And both are permitted. And I asked him to read the longer one because what we see is Jesus knew Lazarus was, was dead. And he tarried for a couple days. He didn't rush to Bethany right away. This was very willfully permitted by him. And what we see is two different vantage points in the story. Martha and Mary don't know anything about what Jesus said about, for your sake, I'm glad this happened. Right? He just said that to the disciples when he was many miles away from Bethany. So they get this sort of um, early insight into God's sovereign plan of what he's going to do. They get kind of the inside scoop, as it were. And they are conspicuously absent from the whole miracle exchange, right? There's no mention of the apostles, but you, they're there, they're with Jesus. And they know that Jesus has said he's going to do something that glorifies God. And that somehow this death is going to get turned around. I mean, so they're, they're watching silently. Mary and Martha don't know that. To them, it's inexplicable. It's like, why didn't he come sooner? We kind of had a rough idea where he was. He was just here in Judea. Why didn't he come sooner? He intentionally tarried. Why? And the cry of Mary and Martha, it's repeated twice verbatim because both Mary and Martha say it. Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, so much pathos in this. It's our instinct too. But I think it's... um, in light of what we see in the Lazarus count, it's wrong-headed on two counts. Because one, as God, he is there. right? He can see Nathaniel under the tree. There's nothing that is... He can heal the centurion servant remotely. right? Jesus' physical absence wasn't the problem. By virtue of his Godhead, he's everywhere in the universe. But also it's this idea that, well, if we're close to God, nothing bad would have happened. And I think part of the teaching value of this real historical moment is that, no, you can be near to God and still bad things happen. They're permitted. It would have happened according to his perfect will and by his permission, directly or indirectly. So that's the first point I think we get from the whole, when we read the long Lazarus story in John 11, that God in Christ Jesus permits pain. But he doesn't stop there, and deism, sort of a natural theology, would stop there. Like, yeah. We could just, you know, if candid observation, things are permitted, voila. Um, Christ doesn't stop there. It's not just permitted pain. It's pain he then chooses to share with them. He takes it to his own heart with that most famous ultra-short verse, Jesus wept. I, sometimes I wonder, because of course the versification is not in the original text. It's added, like, the versification not till like the 13th or 14th century. But sometimes I wonder, when you, know, when you see that, that verse is put really short, it's like even the people who put the verses there were like, yeah, pay attention to this verse. Don't miss this one. Jesus wept. He sees his friends weeping, and he calls them his friends. He sees them weeping, and he's troubled. He is pained to see our pain. He's not surprised by Lazarus' death. He already said he knew it was going to happen. He already knows what is about to take place. But he's pained empathically with our pain. As it says in Hebrews um, oh no, I can't remember the exact words. He has um, shared in our sufferings. 
He shared in our sufferings. Pain to see our pain. Pain to see his creatures whom he made, whom he loves, um, still under the tyranny, for now, temporarily, of death. I think he's also pained with a similar pain to which he kind of rebukes the disciples in the boat when there's the storm and it calms the storm and he's like, oh, you don't have faith? That like God has your life in his hand and he is watching over you? Like the pain that they don't see the bigger picture after he's told them about his being the resurrection and the life. He weeps. As a man, he weeps. And it's interesting that I just learned this week that the Greek word there isn't the same word that's used when the mourners weep, which is usually translated wailing. It's not wailing, it's gentle crying is how the word is usually translated. So it's not flowing from sort of, um, oh no, what's going on? The way we mourn. It's weeping from the compassionate heart of God himself for his children who are suffering. He permits the pain and he shares the pain. That's something that no philosophy of God could get to, right? Jesus shows us the heart of God in this. He permits the pain. He then shares the pain, but he doesn't stop there. It's not just some emotional consolation of, oh, well, he's suffering with us, which is some consolation, but he then redeems it. He then turns it around, flips it 180. In the person of Lazarus, in this exchange, and why it's such a communicative miracle, he shows that in the end, for all those who believe in him, all shall be well. Even the very worst thing that can happen, dying, can and will be overcome. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so I think when we see the story of Lazarus in the way it's different from Jesus' resurrection, because we know Lazarus died again. We don't know when, some years or decades later, but he had to die again in his mortal body. It was renewed life, it wasn't resurrected life. And we see the difference even in the parallels. Lazarus comes out wrapped in, still wrapped in his linens. Jesus' grave linens are just laying there in the tomb because his body's been transformed and he just passed through them the same way you could walk through walls and through the empty, through the, the walls of the tomb. So I, I, I was trying to think about how does Lazarus' resurrection relate to Jesus' resurrection, which is about two weeks after, um, exactly as it sits on our liturgical calendar. Um, and I think the best picture I can think of is, you know how before they make a car, they make like a clay model of the car, so you can kind of get a sense of the outline and the bulk and the wind flow? Lazarus's renewed life is like the clay model of the car. Like, look, here's renewed life. But then when Jesus is raised from the dead, it's like, here's the real car. This is what your life is going to look like when he raises us on the last day. And what we see... Um, it's amazing how analogies seem so good when I write them down. And when I say them, it's like, that's oh, actually not a very good analogy. But anyways, um, Mary and Martha are given the extraordinary privilege of seeing their pain and loss reversed in four days' time. That's extraordinary. Very few of us will get to see such reversals of pain and loss. Some might. Some pains may be thus reversed. So Jesus isn't showing us like the expected time frame. He's just showing us the final outcome. That look, he can raise the dead. And he will raise the dead on the last day when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. So most of us will not have our pain redeemed on that time scale so swiftly. But that Lazarus was raised gives us hope that whatever is paining us, whatever is causing us to weep as mourners weep, he will redeem 
because he will reverse death, the end goal and fund of all that is horrible in this life. He will reverse death. He will redeem our pain, possibly in this life, certainly in the next. Certainly in the next. So we have a few short years where we weep a lot in this veil of tears. But then when we are raised on the dead, we will laugh triumphantly. It's the hidden promise in the beatitude, right? Blessed are you who weep now, then you will laugh. Then we'll share in eternal joy, seeing the whole thing flipped around and everything redeemed and ransomed and rescued that has been brought to him by faith. We'll stand with our Savior, forgiven, cleansed, made whole and new and having all evil pushed away. We'll laugh with joy. Our praise in heaven will have the character of the most joyful laughter that we know in this life. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Amen.